Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to robingobel.com slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. Alrighty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. Real quick, the contents of this episode could feel triggering or overwhelming. Please take care of yourself. You might want to skip this episode, listen in small chunks, or maybe head over to my website and read the transcript instead of listening. Sometimes that can feel less triggering and less overwhelming. You can find the transcript at robingobel.com slash toxic shame. Hello, hello. It's me, Robin Goble, and you are listening to the Parenting After Trauma podcast. Welcome or welcome back. Y'all, I'm recording this just days before this episode is going to go live, which is pretty unusual for me. I try not to work under such tight deadlines. It's not good for my own nervous system. And it isn't good for all of the helpers that I have, because if I'm delayed, then they're working close to deadlines as well. The people who help me with my podcast. And so I try not to work this way, but life has been such a whirlwind lately. Like, maybe in some ways even more than normal, culminating in a couple really big things happening. I mean, truly just in the last couple days. So on the day that I'm recording this, it has only been a few days since I learned that my book is officially on Amazon barnesandnoble.com, and it's available for pre-order. Now, the book actually has unfortunately been, been delayed. We were hoping that it would publish in late April, and the current publication date is September 21st, 2023. And I actually did not know that the listing was up on Amazon that it was available for pre-order. In fact, somebody in the club told me, hey, I pre-ordered your book. And honestly, my initial reaction was like, no, you didn't. You must have made some kind of mistake and ordered a different book. But before I actually said that back to them, I paused and I just Googled myself. And sure enough, there's my book, Amazon.com available for pre-order. It's at barnesandnoble.com as well. And I am working with a local independent bookstore to have it available to pre-order through them as well for those of us who like to have options for where we order our books. In more ways than one, publishing a book has been quite an adventure. I did not know that we were in a position of having the book available for pre-order. So that was 
very exciting. And it means that I've essentially made a whole lot of announcements about the book all at one time. The title, the cover, the publication dates, and I also haven't really talked a ton about who I was so honored to write my foreword. So all of these pieces were announced on the same day. The book is called Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, colon, Brain-Body Sensory Strategies That Really Work. The cover is official. If you find the book at robingobel.com slash baffling book, you will see the cover. And I am also just so thrilled, humbled, honored, gobsmacked. I mean, so many feelings to announce that my dear mentor, colleague, and friend, Bonnie Badenoch, graciously wrote the foreword to the book. These were all huge announcements that I made. Actually, the day I'm recording this, I started making that announcement today. Something else unexpected and also very exciting happened in the last couple days. And I found out that I was nominated for an award here in my local community, uh, the West Michigan Women's Brilliance Award in the category of entrepreneur. Y'all, seriously, I don't even know. I don't even know what to think of this. I'll be, I'm sure, processing this, talking about this. It's like, y'all... I'm a social worker and the work that I do helps people, helps people all over the world. So to think that that gets to be true and somebody else is seeing this work and, and recognizing it in the category of entrepreneurship. Like I said, this has all just happened. I really don't even know what to make of it. Interestingly enough, I think these two really big experiences for me lend themselves beautifully for what I would like to talk about today, and I'm going to do a follow-up episode next week about toxic shame and the neurobiology of toxic shame, how toxic shame shows up, what it looks like, and ultimately, how can we help folks and ourselves when we come into contact with toxic shame. And the reason that all of these things happening in my life and the book being up on Amazon and this award that I've been nominated for, the reason why this makes a really great backdrop for talking about toxic shame is it is very common for experiences that most folks would label positive, good, right? Like, for example, having, having your book up on Amazon. And being nominated for an award, those things most people would think would bring about lots of really great feelings. But the truth is, for so many folks, including myself, 
these kinds of experiences can touch into really, really old neural nets of toxic shame. I've also been speaking a lot about toxic shame lately. I just presented at the Michigan Association for Play Therapy Conference, and we talked about uh, working with kids with toxic shame in play therapy. The concept, the ideas of toxic shame have just been kind of uh, on the tip of my tongue lately. And all of these things kind of came together at one time. And I realized I was obviously being asked by the universe to do a couple episodes all about toxic shame. So we're going to start today with the neurobiology of toxic shame, like what is toxic shame? Why is it important that we understand what toxic shame is? And then next week we'll talk about, okay, so now what? What do we do with toxic shame? How do we help it? So let's start with just talking about shame. And for me, I think it's easiest to reference Brené Brown's statement about shame versus guilt. And she talks about guilt being the experience or the sensation of I did something bad or wrong, whereas shame is the felt sense of I am something bad or wrong. So for me, it's the difference between being versus doing. And a really important developmental stage is when we realize we are not our behaviors. We can do something wrong or bad and not be a wrong or bad person. The really important developmental experience that happens, except for some folks, it doesn't happen. The distinction between our behaviors and ourselves doesn't happen. And those folks can almost live on this like roller coaster ride of I do something good, I am good. I do something bad, I am bad. Okay. Dr. Dan Siegel in his Pocket Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology defines shame as a state of mind filled with a sense of the self as being defective. Okay, so we can think about the difference between shame and toxic shame, I think, as a difference between like a shame state, meaning like this kind of moment or moments in time where we have this felt sense of shame, right? It's a shame state, and we can shift out of that state. I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called 
start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and that I want you to listen to in this specific order. And I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingoble.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe. And then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now. robingoble.com slash start here. Versus toxic shame being more of a shame trait. It doesn't shift and change. It feels like it's true all the time. Toxic shame feels like this statement, this sense of describing like all of me as a person, not a part of me or describes me at a certain time or when I've done a certain thing, but a chronic like all of me sense. Toxic shame can be so consuming that many folks that I've met who are experiencing toxic shame, both in the therapy room and outside the therapy room, I've met these folks, many folks often have no idea that what they're experiencing is toxic shame. It just feels like a truth about them. I, I kind of think about how a fish is not aware of being wet, right? It's just a truth about them. It's not even something they notice or have curiosity about because it is just so completely true. And many of the folks that I've known who I've worked with who have toxic shame, and I relate to this in many ways myself, we don't even know that it's a thing. It just feels like how we exist in the world. There's no noticing it because it's just a truth. Here's what is really sticky about this then is that when we believe something is all of us, and again, it's hard to articulate this piece, but it's not a belief. It's just a truth. So when something is just true, when something is all of us, there's no possibility that it could change. There's no option. There's no sense that change is possible. There's there's no room for there to be any space for change, right? Like if if we aren't aware of something, it just feels completely true. A, a, a universal truth kind of maybe like gravity. Here's what's really interesting about toxic shame is that toxic shame actually has absolutely nothing to do with that person or who they are, or even what they did. Toxic shame doesn't develop in the neurobiology as a result of what that person did. It is actually a mislabel of a chronic physiological state. So let me explain this. We got to go and look just briefly at the attachment cycle. Okay, so in its just most oversimplified way, the attachment cycle is about 
an infant having a need, expressing that need, the caregiver noticing and at first matching the infant's physiological state of arousal and how they're expressing the need, and then soothing the infant, inviting the infant to move into a nervous system state of rest and calm, right? So the infant you know, gets activated, the caregiver notices the activation, moves in to soothe the infant, the infant moves into this physiological state of safe and calm and rest. Okay, so what another way to look at what's happening is in the attachment cycle, the infant is making a bid for connection, right? There's this there's this distress in their nervous system that the infant isn't physiological capable of soothing themselves yet. So they make a bid for connection. And yeah, it's usually something like crying, right? There's some activation in the nervous system. There's some way the infant communicates, I need help. And this is a bid for connection. Dan Siegel talks about how when bids for connection are not met the nervous system responds by slamming on like the metaphorical brakes of the nervous system. I'm actually going to read a passage from chapter 10 in Dr. Siegel's Mindsight. And this is probably one of the best explorations of both disorganized attachment and chronic shame in the nervous system. And Dan Siegel writes this, imagine a car with the accelerator smoothly functioning. When we need to be seen and understood by others, our attachment circuits are revved up. We're in a state of seeking connection. And when our need is met, we move forward happily through our lives. But if we are not seen, if our caregivers do not attune to us, and we are met with the experience of feeling invisible or misunderstood, our nervous system responds with a sudden activation of the brake portion of the regulatory circuits. Slamming on the brakes creates a distinctive physiological response, heaviness in the chest, nausea in the belly, and downcast or turned away eyes. We literally shrink into ourselves from a pain that is often beneath our awareness. This nauseating and jolting shift occurs whenever we are ignored or given confusing signals by others, and it is experienced as a state of shame. Shame states are common in children whose parents are repeatedly unavailable or who habitually fail to attune to them. Okay, that's a mouthful. So let's take a breath and think about what that actually is saying. So Dan Siegel is saying that there's these bids for connection that are made. And and, and essentially what's happening is the accelerator of the nervous system is going, right? Saying, hey, hey, here, see me, see me, help me, right? And that accelerator is expecting to be seen and met and resonated with and co-regulated by someone else. And this is not just the expectation of the developing infant. This is the expectation of being human. So we're expecting our states, this sympathetic activation, to be mirrored and seen and then co-regulated. 
when that happens, when we're mirrored and seen and co-regulated, imagine that we gently press on the brakes of our nervous system and just like slowly and nicely ease the engine, you know, slower and slower and slower until we come like up to a stop sign, right? Like if we stay in that metaphor of an engine, okay? In shame, what happens isn't the gentle pressing of the brakes that happens in co-regulation. In shame, what happens is we go from this heightened physiological state, accelerator, 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 to all of a sudden a a kind of like the pressing of the emergency brakes. There's a slamming on the brakes. And it is this slamming on the brakes that creates the physiological experience that later the developing mind labels as shame. So it starts as a physiological experience. It's that slamming of the brakes that creates this this C shape, this this down, this downward tilting head, the the downshift in the eyes, right? That's a physiological experience that has nothing to do with the distressed infant having done anything wrong, right? They didn't do anything wrong or bad, but there was a physiological sensation in the nervous system when their kind of accelerator part of their nervous system wasn't met and co-regulated. Okay, so now... If this happens repeatedly, not just sometimes, I mean, all of us who have parented little babies know that sometimes we don't get to our baby to soothe them in time, or we've got something going on ourselves and we're not offering the soothing that our baby needs or, or something. Babies don't need a perfect attunement and perfect co-regulation. And in fact, they need imperfect attunement and co-regulation to develop their own sense of self. What babies need is a, a good amount of repair. So when we notice that we haven't co-regulated or soothed our, our baby, we notice it. And then we move in to offer presence and safety and security and co-regulation. So what happens in the development of chronic or toxic shame is that the noticing, the repair doesn't happen anywhere close to enough. And so the infant is left in this chronic experience of shame without ever any co-regulation out of that shame experience. Okay, then what happens next is the infant continues to grow and develop and their cognitive parts of their brain start to come online, right? Their cortical functioning comes online. Like teeny tiny babies aren't experiencing this like fall in their nervous system. It feels like this like rug being ripped out from underneath or like the drop of a roller coaster, right? Teeny, teeny, tiny babies don't have the cognitive capacity to label that sensation something like, oh, I guess I'm just a very bad baby, right? They're not having those cognitions. But eventually babies become toddlers and become preschoolers who do have cognitions and they are starting to make cognitive sense of what's happening in the world and what's happening for them and what's happening for their caregiver. And they'll have an experience that 
causes this physiological sensation of shame. So imagine a toddler or a preschooler having tons of eager anticipation in their body and excitement and running out into the middle of the road, right? And uh, the caregiver, of course, is not matching or attuning to this toddler or preschooler's eager anticipation of whatever prompted them to bolt into the road with curiosity, right? This open curiosity, like, oh, look, my ball, or look, there's this thing, right? The caregiver responds with, no, danger, 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 no, 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 right? So there's this huge mismatch and misattunement. Nobody's done anything wrong. The caregiver's done nothing wrong. That mismatch, though, that misattunement also causes that physiological drop. And now it's in a child who has some emerging cortical functioning, and they can label that physiological sensation in their body now as I'm bad. Now, all of us have responded to children this way. And so I want you to take a deep breath and not fall into shame yourself at having caused shame in children. All of us have responded to kids this way. All of us have done something that has created the physiological sensation of shame in children. What happens next in an ideal situation is that that sensation gets noticed and co-regulated. So there, this preschooler who's run out into the road and then the caregiver is no, 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 no. And then the preschooler is like, Oh no, crying, crying. Right. And then that now as the caregiver starts to soothe themselves, now they can start to soothe the preschooler. And so the preschooler has this moment of kind of that falling sensation physiologically, like in their own nervous system. It has this momentary label of I'm bad, but then it moves pretty quickly into I'm okay. Now what that develops into is um, a individual who can distinguish between I did something bad versus I am bad, right? Like I did something bad and I'm still a good person. But shame is super powerful and does often produce success and getting little kids not to do that bad thing anymore. That is like the evolutionary purpose of shame, okay? That it is super powerful and it does help kids not do things that are extremely dangerous or actually what shame is really helpful at is is help kids not do things that would get them like cast out or rejected by the very people who are supposed to care for them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we use shame intentionally as a teaching tool. In fact, what I will often say is shame is never, ever, ever an effective teaching tool. But actually, the truth is, is that shame is an exceptionally effective teaching tool. And that's why we don't want to purposefully use it. It happens sometimes like just in our existence as being humans. And so when shame states arise, we can notice and co-regulate them. And that physiological sensation doesn't become a shame trait of I am bad. Now, 
let's go back to what we had talked about when infants are repeatedly not met in their distress and they're regularly experiencing this physiological sensation of the slamming on the brakes, right? That heaviness in the chest, the nausea in the belly, the downcast or turned away eyes. Now, this infant who's experiencing this physiological sensation quite regularly grows into a toddler and a preschooler who does sometimes have behaviors that are met with an adult communicating in some way, shape, or form, something like, no, don't do that, that's bad, right? And so then they have this shame experience as a preschool or a toddler when they now have the cognitive capacity to label that physiological experience as, shoot, I did something bad or I am something bad. And then there's this way that it's like, wait, I have this physiological sensation all the time. So I must be just bad. This isn't about doing something bad. This is about just being very, very bad. Now let's look at this also through another lens really quickly, which is that Dr. Siegel, he writes that from the point of view of survival, I am bad is a safer perspective than my parents are unreliable and may abandon me at any time. And what I have observed clinically in working with kids and adults is that actually there is hope in the shame state or shame trait of I am bad. There is some hope there of if it's me that's bad, maybe I can change. Whereas if an infant comes to the conclusion or a toddler or preschooler comes to the conclusion that it's their caregiver who's bad, that is actually very hopeless. And the developing mind will do almost anything to stay out or protect against hopelessness. Dan Siegel writes that it's better for the child to feel defective than to realize that their attachment figure is dangerous, unpredictable, or untrustworthy. The mental mechanism of shame at least preserves for them the illusion of safety and security that is at the core of their sanity. So this brings me back to the core belief here of this podcast, of my work, of what we do in the club, of what I teach my students in being with, right? Which is that all behavior makes sense. Even shame makes sense and is protective and yes, has devastating, devastating consequences, So we will talk next time a little bit more about what this can look like, and then we will talk about how we can help support folks who have such a level of chronic shame that it becomes a shame trait instead of a shame state. Now, I want to add one more thing. And for probably most of you listening, this is extra information that's really not necessary for how you are understanding or coming into connection with chronic shame and toxic shame. But I also know a lot of um, therapists and professionals listen to the podcast, and I want to just add one 
more layer here. There's a book by Patricia DeYoung called Understanding and Treating Chronic Shame, Healing Right Brain Relational Trauma. And at the very beginning of the book, Patricia DeYoung writes, shame is the experience of one's felt sense of self-disintegrating in relation to a dysregulating other. Chronic shame, then, is a separate phenomenon that develops when this disintegration happens continually and is unrepaired. So I want to deconstruct that just the littlest bit. Self-integration is developed in relationship with the regulated other, right? The infant dysregulates, this is normal, and needs the co-regulation of a regulated adult to, to come back into not just regulation, but, but to come back into connection with themselves, a self-integration. So when an infant is dysregulated and is met by a caregiver who is mean or weak or gone, and that's language that I learned from Circle of Security, mean, weak, or gone, dysregulated, this creates that sensation of the sudden slamming on the brakes. Now, again, this is a shame state. It's when this happens continuously and is not repaired, meaning the infant doesn't get the mirroring in the presence of an integrated, regulated caregiver that this develops into chronic shame. Now, what I want you to hear more than anything is that the experience of chronic or toxic shame in our nervous system has literally nothing to do with who we are as people or what we've done. It is a protective physiological response to having a need and to having a bid for connection and having that go repeatedly, and please hear me say repeatedly, unmet. That can mean the caregiver could respond in a wide variety of ways. And circle of security says mean, weak, or gone. So mean is, is like kind of what we think of as abusive. Weak is a caregiver who is overwhelmed by the infant's need for connection and they disintegrate themselves. They like lose their own regulation and don't have any capacity to offer co-regulation because they have disintegrated so much themselves. And then gone is a caregiver who is either energetically or physically gone. So not all of these experiences are about an infant who experiences abuse Right? There's many ways that how the caregiver does or doesn't respond can lead to that physiological sensation of like the rug being pulled out from underneath you. And then eventually that infant develops these cortical capacities and starts to label that physiology as I am bad. And then this just feels like all of them. It doesn't feel like it's in response to something they did. It feels like just who they are. Now, what we haven't talked about at all is how does this shame 
trait, this sense of chronic, I'm just bad. How does that contribute to behaviors? And we'll talk about that next week because shame doesn't come only come out in ways that are obviously shame, right? Like it's, it's easier to see statements of I'm terrible or folks who kind of move through the world holding their bodies in a way that makes sense with shame, right? Like with their downcast eyes or lack of energy in their body, we can more easily see those kinds of observable behaviors as shame. But that is without question, not even close to the only way that shame comes out. So we'll talk about that next week. And then we will talk about, okay, so what do we do? How do we help folks who carry this sense of chronic or toxic shame in their nervous system? Now to bring us full circle quickly back to the beginning of the episode, when I talked about how it is very common for folks to have good things happen to them or for them to be told by other people that they are good or doing good things out in the world. It's so common for that to then be accompanied by what can feel like a whiplash, a tsunami of shame. And the reason is, is because this information is coming in from the outside world that's essentially like you're good or you're doing good. And it feels like a complete lie. So the person is left to to kind of grapple with either you're lying to me now or I was lied to. I mean, we can put that in like air quotes, like lied to. I learned something untrue about myself when I was very small and I have lived my whole life believing this untruth about me. And if I were to risk believing that that isn't true, everything about what I know to be true about me will have to come into question. And I will also have to grieve what I learned and how that has impacted my whole life. Like what I learned that I am a very terrible person. I'll have to grieve how I came into learning that about myself and that it's not true and the impact that it has had on my life, right? And many, many, many folks just find that to be way too overwhelming of a prospect. So yes, getting feedback from the world, like you are good, or even you've done something good, can actually light up those neural nets that are holding the toxic shame. And we can see that toxic shame come to the forefront in a really, really powerful way. And those of us who are caregivers who love people with histories of chronic or toxic shame can find this very confusing, right? Like how can this great, amazing thing have happened? How can that light up all of your sensation of being bad? So hopefully this is starting to make just a little bit more sense. And in upcoming episodes, 
it will start to make even more and more sense. And then we'll get to, okay, so what do we do about this? Phew. All right. So I'm going to take a big breath because this was a lot. Thank you for your guts and your bravery to be curious about the topic of toxic shame and whether you're curious because it feels like you hold some of this in your own neurobiology or if it's because you know people who hold this in their neurobiology, maybe the the people you work with or the kids that you care for or your spouse or your partner or, or people in your life that you love. Thank you for your guts and your bravery to learn about the neurobiology of toxic shame. If you wanted to think really quickly about shame through the lens of owls, watchdogs, and possums, which those owls, watchdogs, and possums are the absolute star of my book, Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, we would think about toxic shame as being on the possum pathway. The book is available for pre-order at robingobel.com slash bafflingbook. And we also learn about this and talk about this and, and try to make sense of all of this in the context of our kids' baffling behaviors and ours inside the club. In fact, there is a training about the neurobiology of toxic shame in the club's on-demand learning library, but just by the nature of how the club exists and the way that we are in community and the way that we are committed to our manifesto, these are ways that we work together as a community to dismantle the neurobiology of toxic shame while also having gratitude and reverence for the way that toxic shame believes that it's being protective. All right, y'all, it has been so wonderful to be with you again today, and I look very much forward to continuing with this series next week. I will see you then. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids, but also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. 
Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.